Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Get outside and explore Chicago on a CAFC river cruise aboard Chicago's First Lady. Now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Called the number one boat tour in Chicago by TripAdvisor, CAC docents share the fascinating secrets and stories behind more than 50 famous buildings facing the Chicago River. Delight in panoramic views and hear how our hometown became world-renowned for its architecture. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Friday, July 17th, 2020. Uh, the headline in today's Chicago Tribune, I'll give the sh- Chicago Tribune a shout out. Wind Pot Calls, company that runs huge greenhouse near Starve Rock, wants in on Illinois marijuana market if you can get the license. So, folks, if you're listening to this podcast five years from now, Legalized Reefer was in the news uh, when I did this interview. Legalized marijuana. Uh, well, that, I will not be discussing legalized marijuana uh, on this show, nor will I be smoking it until perhaps after the show is over. I can hold off and have a little discipline. Uh, as I do with all my bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi there. As a bonus, uh, my name is Evan Brandt. I'm a reporter at the Pottstown Mercury newspaper in Pennsylvania, uh, where I've been uh, covered local government for about 23 years. Yes. And uh, Evan, thank you very much for coming on the show. And folks, you may, maybe a few out there going, wait a minute, Evan Brandt, Evan Brandt, that Evan Brandt. Yes. That Evan Brandt. If you're a reader of the New Hi, York Mom. times. <laughs> Mama Brand, I know him. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Mama Brand knows him. Yes, it's, that was always my joke. Uh, the only person who read my story, there were two people who read my stories, Evan, me and my mother. Uh, and right. uh, even then, sometimes I wasn't sure about her. All right. Uh, Evan Brandt was the feature in a great article by Dan Barry. Got to give a lot of love and shout out to Dan Barry. I disagree with the the placement of one key element. Uh, Evan will uh, take issue with me on that as we get into the interview and he will defend Dan Barry, but I take a little issue with the bearing and the lead that said really well-written story. I urge absolutely everyone to check it out. Dan Barry's story about Evan Brandt. It was published July 10th, 2020 in the New York times. I'm looking at a picture of Evan Brandt right now. Evan, you're wearing gloves and with uh, what, what's with the gloves. I, well, you know, you've, you've, climate change is, is a fickle thing, so it's only about 40 degrees here in Pennsylvania right now. Oh, the, when this picture was... Okay. Oh. <laughs> 
the photo was uh was taken back in uh in march uh when when uh dan and the photographer came down to visit me i see so it was cold that day i was like what are you mm-hmm. uh, it's like michael jackson or something well well you're wearing two gloves not just one so anyway uh evan brandt perhaps uh the lone reporter left covering potsdam pennsylvania has worked at the mercury for more than two decades uh this is a great uh, it's a great profile evan uh and the what it's like to be a municipal reporter uh in a relatively small town uh, in this day and age the importance of newspapers but it also and this is really what I want to hammer on, also gets uh, into the impact on journalism uh, when large corporations, hedge funds, buy up newspapers and then just squeeze them dry to make all the money they can out of them without, uh, without care uh, for what's happening to the town, the industry, and to the writers. Uh, so anyway, uh, Evan, why don't you just uh, give folks a little introduction to yourself? You, you started off um, just a uh, with the introduction, but, um, you know, how long have you been in the business? How'd you get in the business? That kind of thing. Well, it depends on what you count. I actually put out an underground newspaper when I was in high school, so we didn't make any money, but if that counts as being in the business, that's, that would put me uh, somewhere around the 38 year mark. Um, when I got out of college, I, uh, I got a job at a weekly, uh, in New York state where I'm from just above New York city. I was a reporter there and then the editor and then the executive editor. And I was doing a lot of work that wasn't related to newspapers and I wanted to get back to it. So in 1997, I got myself a job at the Mercury and, uh, and moved down here and I've been here ever since. Now, tell people uh, what Pottstown is like, where it is, and what it, what sort of town is it? Pottstown's about uh, 38 miles uh, northwest of Philadelphia. It is uh, an old, uh, it's a, technically, I guess you'd call it, it's a Rust Belt town. Uh, several major uh, old-style industries. There was a Bethlehem steel plant here where uh, the uh, steel girders for the Golden Gate Bridge were fabricated. Um, there was uh, a Firestone tire plant here, a bunch of other plants uh, that most of them related to the automotive industry or to the, to the steel industry. And all but one of those have, have closed now. And so it's, it's a town that's looking for a new future. I, and uh, as a reporter, what are some of the uh, beats that you covered in your time uh, with the Mercury? Well, almost since the beginning, I've covered the borough of Pottstown, which is uh, a municipality of about uh, 23,000 people. Um, And uh, as our staff has been whittled down by uh, corporate and then hedge fund ownership, my beats have expanded. Um, And uh, at certain times uh, when local elections are going on, I am technically responsible for about 50 municipalities. And so when you took this job, did you understand sort of the language of the the people that they spoke? Not literally English. I understand you understand English. But like if you go to a zoning meeting, uh, would you understand sort of the lingo of, of the zoning meeting? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, so I, never- I, had, I had gotten wise to that from, uh, when I started up in New York. I covered a lot of those kind of meetings. So it was it was no big change to, to come down to Pottstown. And uh, is Pottstown a Democrat or Republican town? Well, um, Montgomery County, uh, which uh, has a larger population than three states, 
It's, it stretches all the way from Philadelphia up to Pottstown. We're right on on the on the western edge of Montgomery County. Had always traditionally been a very uh, red county area, but in the past uh, in the past eight to ten years, it's begun to change uh, irrevocably blue. So Pottstown is is definitely a Democratic town, but uh, the western part, the rest of western. Montgomery County is, is still skews pretty red, so it's like an island of blue surrounded by red. <laughs> it's interesting that this is happening uh, while the area is becoming more quote-unquote liberal or more democratic. Uh, when you first got to uh, the Mercury, when you first began working there, uh, what was the circulation and uh, who owned the paper? Uh, when I first got here, the paper was owned by the Goodson Group. Um, which, if you're old enough, you may remember game shows that were called a Mark Goodson, Bill Podman production with the tagline. Um, and that was the same fellow who owned a bunch of newspapers that uh, anything he could drive to from New York City, have lunch, and come back on the same day was the circle he was willing to own a newspaper in. So shortly after I got here, we were uh, purchased by uh, a fairly notorious uh, company called uh, the Journal Register Corporation, which was known for cutting staff, and and that's what they started to do almost immediately. Uh, they ultimately went bankrupt, and were uh, when they came out of bankruptcy, a couple of board members took the company over and uh, formed a company called Digital First Media. That also went into bankruptcy, and ultimately some of those board members uh, it came under the ownership of Alden Global Capital, which is a New York City-based hedge fund that now owns uh, several dozen newspapers around the country and clusters around major cities. All right. And uh, so before we get to Alden, uh, but, but by, by the way, I can empathize with you. Just listening to you do that recitation, uh, my beloved Chicago reader, which I've worked for uh, since dinosaurs were on the earth, we went through a very similar experience for, for like a 10 year phase bankruptcy, new one owner, new owner, another owner. So I can can relate to what you're uh, what you're describing. Uh, so what was the circulation in 1997 uh, when you uh, joined the paper? Um, yeah, well, my understanding of circulation when I joined was it was about 30,000. <laughs> and uh, my understanding now is that it's somewhere around 5,000. 5,000. Okay. So back in the day, 30,000, what role did the paper play in the town, uh, in did the politics of the town, et cetera, and so forth? The paper was, was a major player uh, when I first got to town. Uh, the editor at the time had been uh, an editor at the, at the long-defunct Philadelphia Bulletin, uh, and he's a guy who hired me, a guy named Walt Herring, who has since passed away. Um, and at the time, he told me that he was conducting an experiment to see if big city journalism could be done in a small town. So it was a very hard-hitting paper, very brash, um, uh, covered car crashes and, and house fires uh, like it was the end of the world and um, really sold like hotcakes. So when you would go around town, did you have evidence that people were uh, reading what you wrote, that what you wrote had an impact? Yeah, it was it was pretty evident because I covered uh, you know the the city council, which in Boston is called the borough council. Um, what we wrote about them 
had a big impact. They would talk about it at the meeting, uh, and it, w- it would be fairly evident that we had the ability at times to, to shift opinion on things. Well, that's a lot of power uh, if you could shift opinions on things. And uh, did you, were you were you subjected to uh, criticism as a result? That anybody ever go, Brand, you get it wrong again? Anything like that? Sure, that's that, that's in the job description. You know that uh, <laughs> I've had that since um, yeah. uh, since the job back at the weeklies. I can still remember getting a, an angry reader email when we had run a feature on July fourth and. I misspelled independence in the headline. (laughs) Uh, That reader was pretty sure that I was a communist. (laughs) Was that your fault? Did you just take the blame for somebody else or was it actually your fault? Totally my mistake. All right, good. Uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) working in newspapers is is a constant uh, rush and and the and the resources since I first started have been constantly dwindling. So um, you know, staffs have been cut at every newspaper I've worked at, everywhere I've been, and so you know that was just in in the rush of deadline, trying to get something done, and no longer had a copy desk to check it, and but it went, and I didn't catch it. Um, all right, and let's get now get down to the ownership changes. Uh, so you you described one owner, another owner, and another owner, and now Alden. Talk about what Alden has done uh, to your newspaper. Well, uh, one of the reasons I believe that Alden um, bought uh, the paper is is it what it liked this cluster strategy that has been put together. So, in addition to the Mercury, there are about. Uh, there are five other papers uh, in sort of a semicircle that surround Philadelphia and, and one in Trenton as well. Uh, some of them are union, some are non-union. But what they like about it is that you can you can cut editing staff and then you can run stories from other papers in, in multiple papers. So if I write a story about Pottstown, it's very likely to show up in the sister paper, the Norristown Times-Herald, which is based in a town in the county seat 20 miles away and vice versa. Uh, and so it, uh, it allowed for them to continue to fill the, the paper with what they could, what they could call local content, but which was actually from outside the paper's coverage and circulation area. Were they, did they start cutting uh, staff uh, as a result of this? Sure. That was, that was the point. Um, I mean, the thing, I mean, Journal Register uh, was a company that was, despite its many faults, at least it was a newspaper company. Uh, Alden is a company that owns newspapers. Uh, Alden Hedge Fund also uh, ran uh, Payless Shoes into bankruptcy. It ran Fred's Pharmacy into bankruptcy. And there's money to be made in bankruptcy if you do it right. So people often ask me, you know, why are they diminishing their product? And I tell them, uh, and and I stole this from Ken Doctor, who writes for the Neiman uh, Journalism Lab, their product isn't the newspaper. Their product is profit. That's the only thing they're trying to do. So what they'll do is they'll buy up uh, these news chains, and they'll load them down with debt uh, that they don't take on themselves. And then they extract profit from it as, as the newspapers, which were already struggling to make a profit, now have to pay off this debt. And they sell off the assets. That's why I'm talking to you from my attic. They sold the newspaper building. They, you know, they sell the real estate. Um, uh, 
when they first bought the building, they uh, they they bought it, they sold, they bought it as a subsidiary, and then charged themselves rent so that they could extract profit from the operation. It has nothing to do with putting out a good newspaper, and everything to do with helping their bottom line. And uh, I should point out uh, that there's sort of a local angle on this story. Uh, Alden now owns or is a not completely owns, but is a a significant uh, investor in the Chicago Tribune. And we're going to be having uh, on the show, I think next week, Charlie Johnson from the Tribune. He's a union. I think he's the head of the, the, the union there, one of the leaders of the union there at the Tribune. We'll be talking about what Alden is doing to Tribune. So this is a problem, not just in uh, Pennsylvania, but it's a problem right no, here it's in Chicago. a national problem. And, you yeah. know, Alden owns papers around San Francisco. It owns papers in L.A. It owns papers in, uh, in Ohio. It owns papers in New York. Um, and it's the same playbook every time. They they buy it, they buy it on the cheap, usually coming out of bankruptcy, and then they you know they just bleed it dry. It's they they strip everything for parts. Uh, and uh, was there a union at your newspaper when you uh, joined up in 1997? There was, and and there still is, and and I'm the shop steward, and. That's one of the things that gives me a certain level of protection to talk about them like I do and still keep my job. Explain uh, there that. Are other, um, well, um, under the labor law, uh, when you're in a union, uh, you're allowed to uh, talk about things that affect the union. Um, and, and there are certain protections against being fired because of what's in the contract. And so unlike people who are working at will, uh, at a place where, which is like what I worked at before, where you could have been fired for any reason, there's a there's a whole progression of discipline that you have to go through before you can be fired. And and I've never been disciplined, um, despite some of the more outrageous things I've done. Uh, and and my belief is that's because I'm in the union. And uh, let the world know what union is it. The union, by the way, is the Newspaper Guild, which is a subset of Communication Workers of America. All right, and I a moment of confession, a disclaimer. What's the word uh, when you when you when you you admit something in a in a story? Uh, I forget what. How, there's a way of doing it, but I'm in that same union. All right, so there you go, <laughs> and proud of it. Uh, and I believe. Thank you uh, I, I I do believe that the union, the newspaper guild uh, saved my beloved uh, reader and the sun times. So, or helped save them. It was paid a pivotal role in saving them. And as these hedge funds have been buying up newspapers, uh, the economic troubles of the papers, of course, have only been made worse by the pandemic. But one of the other reactions that you're seeing is that papers are unionizing all over the country at an amazing rate. Uh, in Arizona, the L.A. Times, which was always a staunchly anti-union paper, uh, it was organized and they got their first contract in the history of the newspaper. And the president of the newspaper guild, uh, John Schleutz, is uh, the fellow who made a lot of that happen out in L.A. There's a huge wave of unionization going on as as people who want to do this job look for anything that can help that continue. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I know I tease a lot of my friends at the Tribune because for years and years, the Tribune was a non-union paper. And if you talk to them, it's like in the nineties, oh, Ben, come on, we don't, <laughs> we don't need a union. And now, you know, I guess they realize they do. So, Hey, better late than never is what I say. Enjoy the union. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Now, so let's get to the part of the story 
uh, that everybody loves. By the way, Dan Barry's story in the New York Times, let me just say this, is a really fine story. And and I teased Evan. I said he buried the lead, but it's a really fine story. It's well worth reading. There's just some great moments in there. I think he really captured what it's like to be a reporter in a small town and the significance that the role you play in that small town, Evan, the fact that people look to you to be the purveyor of truth. You know what I'm saying? You 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 mm-hmm. like it to be a, a priest. I'm not sure I go that far, but um it does have a well, very significant. Let's, let's put it this way: I I, I called it a public calling, uh, uh, like like the priesthood, in the sense that I don't think anyone goes becomes a newspaper reporter because they want to become rich. Um, they become a newspaper reporter because they they think that uh, it serves an important role, um, and you know, and and it can be a popular one. Uh, you know, people who become uh, defense attorneys, you know, they may want to become rich, but they know they're not going to become popular uh, defending accused criminals. So uh, as a as a journalist, and particularly in a small town where I can't walk into the supermarket without someone telling me what story I should be working on, um, you know, you, you don't you don't always uh, you don't always make everyone happy, but but you go into it because it's it's a call. Yeah, you're. You know, you're right. You're right about the. Uh, you're right about the. You're not going to be rich if you go into uh, to journalism. That's for certain. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I, I agree. I agree with that point. And also, uh, you, you there is a certain notoriety. All right, let's get down to uh, your great confrontation with the powers that be uh, at Alden. I love this part. And, and uh, when I read this in the New York Times, I had you know I always tease myself. Uh, uh, Evan, that I'm always the last to know everything. I didn't realize this mm-hmm. was a, a well, a well told story, a story that had been told before. So this was my first encounter uh, with this tale about you in, uh, confronting Alden. So why don't you, uh, why don't you just lead, tell the story as it should be told? Sure, um, I've, I've got it down to I think two minutes now. Um, so my, uh, my father and my stepmother, uh, live out in Sag Harbor, which is out in a part of Long Island called the Hamptons where, where the, where the rich and famous likes to play. So one of the rich people who has a place out there is a fellow named Heath Freeman, and he is the managing director of Alden Global Cap. Um, and so, uh, just before I went out to visit, uh, my folks, uh, with my family on on a rare vacation, um, I had read a piece uh, in the Nation about Keith Freeman. Uh, the piece was written by a great investigative reporter named Julie Reynolds, who is working for the Newspaper Guild specifically on investigating Alden, which is an extremely secretive company, has a lot of funds in the Cayman Islands and that sort of things, and, and she's done a fantastic job. And what she had done is she had she was talking about all the real estate that Heath Freeman and Randall Smith, who was the guy, the two of them founded Alden together, all the real estate they owned, and and uh, she documented through public records how Heath Freeman had bought a uh, a summer place in Montauk, which is out at the end of Long Island. Um, and at the same time, I had read a piece by. Um, uh, by Ken Doctor uh, about uh, he had gotten some figures uh, out of Alden, which are extremely difficult to get, which showed that uh, on a percentage basis that the papers around Philadelphia had provided the largest profit margin of any of the newspapers that Alden owned, that they had made a 30% profit 
And they had done that on the backs of, of reporters, on firing reporters, on on cutting staff in the advertising department, on not maintaining the building so that the roof leaked. Uh, and as I told Dan, it was really grilling my onions as I was driving out on the on the Southern State Parkway just musing on this. And I got out uh, to my folks' house, and my stepmother used to be a newspaper reporter in Albany. She and I were talking about this, and uh, I said, boy, you know, I should just go out and see him. And I didn't really expect to see him. What I mostly was going to do was go out there and hold the sign. Uh, at the time, the uh, the phrase that the union was using was invest in us or sell us, because we were very upset about the fact that they were making all this money, but none of it was being put back into the paper to keep reporters or anything. It was all just being sucked out for them to invest somewhere else. So I made a sign on a piece of cardboard that said invest in us or sell us. I had my T-shirt that said hashtag T-shirt that said news matters. And the whole idea was just to go out there and stand in his driveway and have a picture taken and, and put it on Twitter and social media. Well, I'm standing there in the driveway. Uh, a woman who I presume to be his wife pulls out of the driveway in a Volvo and asks if she can help me. And I turned and looked at her and I said, well, is Mr. Freeman home? And she looked at my T-shirt and she looked at my sign and she said, no, he's not. And she drove away. So I, was, I thought, oh, so much for that. And then I'm hearing music coming from the deck. It's uh, Dave Matthews' aunt's marching. And I'm like, yeah, I think somebody's home. So I thought to myself, I do this for a living. I knock on people's doors cold all the time and ask them questions. And I had brought my notebook with me and I thought, let's see what happens. So I went and I knocked on his door. And uh, the housekeeper opened the door, and uh, I asked if uh, Mr. Freeman was home, and she said, is he expecting you? I said, most definitely not. Uh, and uh, she let me in the front door, and I stood there in the, in the foyer. And uh, it's a big house, and he's making it bigger. And it's one of these houses that has uh, an open hallway and like a little balcony across on the second floor where you walk from one room to the other. And he just happened to be walking by. He was carrying his, his infant kid and he didn't have a shirt on. And she said, this man's here to see you. And he looked down at me and he looked at my t-shirt and he just shook his head. <laughs> so, so she said, you're going to have to wait outside and help. And I, I said, okay. So I waited outside, and then she came out, and she said, it would be best if you called him. And I said, sure, what's the number? And she said, uh, I don't know. And I said, I really doubt that. Um, but in any case, I'll call him. And I left, and that was the end of it. Well, uh, that is a great story. I think there's a lot of reporters out there uh, who kind of envy you uh, for that opportunity. But there's more to the story, as Paul Harvey would say. There's more to the story. Uh, I'm showing my age there, Evan, by re uh, referring to Paul Harvey. Anyway, I'm, now I'm going to Dan uh, Barry's article in the New York Times. Uh, and so I'm reading from Dan Barry. And then uh, when I'm done reading this, uh, I'll ask you for uh, to any amplification you have. So here we go. I'm now reading from Dan Barry's uh, article, excellent article in the New York Times, quote, let us pause to note that of the many questions sent in writing to Alden Global Capital for this article, the only, I'm sorry, I'm trying to read this with a straight face. Uh, <clears throat> 
be professional, Ben. <clears throat> uh, let you us pause to know that one of the ma- of the many questions sent in writing to Alden Global Capital for this article, the only one its spokesman addressed concerned Mr. Freeman's recollection of this incident. They responded not by answering the question, but by referring to A.G. Sulzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, quote, would the New York Times likely terminate? <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> With, this is what's on the mind of the people who run Alden. Would the New York Times likely terminate the employment of a staff member who showed up randomly unannounced demanding to question Mr. Solzberger at his home? That's why we are unclear why the New York Times is choosing to glorify this improper, intrusive conduct. <laughs> End of quote. Uh, I, when I read that, man, I I just I laughed out loud. This is the one thing you guys are responding to. This is it. You, you want Salzburg to start firing people? Is that it? Uh, all well, right. There's, so what, so there's yeah. a couple of things to add to that. Um, the, the first is, in in my view, when I read that, I laughed as well. Um, Dan had told me they said it and and wondered whether it wasn't a veiled threat to fire me and. I said, you know, if that's going to happen, it's going to happen. But what it really demonstrates is is what I was saying before, is that they don't understand journalism. Reporters do that every day. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine uh, a real newspaper publisher, you know, admonishing a reporter for going and knocking on someone's door in, in, in pursuit of a story. Uh, the, the second addendum to add to that, which is probably going to make you laugh even harder, is I've been in touch with Dan since. That particular phrase that you read has, has gotten a lot of reaction in the journalism world. And I've been in touch with Dan since, and he told me that he heard from Schultzberger, who told him simply, you can knock on my door anytime you want. <laughs> but he's going to put a shirt on. <laughs> if Okay, 101, Alden, if a reporter comes to your house, put a shirt on, for goodness sake. Nobody wants to see you walking around bare-chested. Man, well, I mean, he had no idea it was coming. I, you know, I don't. Know. <laughs> Look at you defending the boss he's right the, there. He's at the beach. <laughs> well, he's done plenty of things I disagree with, but I'm not going to slam anyone for not wearing a shirt in their own house when they're at the beach. Hey, Heath Freeman, you hear that? He's standing up for you. All right, give the guy a raise for Christ's sake. Uh, <laughs> under this withering cross examination, he's defending you. Uh, I love that story so much, and uh, you know, but. In all seriousness, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the hardest things about being a reporter is knocking on that door. And I know that uh, anyone who any publisher of a newspaper would not think twice about dispatching his reporter to knock on the door of like a, a widow whose husband just I just get the quote, just get the quote. You know what I'm saying? But when the yeah, roles I mean, are reversed, I can, rem- I can remember a reporter being assigned. We had uh, a story about a landfill expanding. And the editor assigned a reporter, go knock on all the doors of the people who live near the landfill and get their attention. I mean, that poor guy had to knock on like 25 doors. Yeah. Yeah. So this is standard operating procedure. So stop. You know, I'm going to send Heath Freeman a handkerchief. He can cry in it and uh, get it out of his system. Uh, now, by the way, on a related matter, but uh, not directly related. I, don't, I just got finished reading uh, Ronan Farrell's book. Ronan Farrell is a uh, writer for The New Yorker. and He wrote a book about Harvey Weinstein, uh, Capture and Kill. I don't know if you read that, uh, but part of the book uh, the part I found uh really uh, fascinating in many ways was the efforts that Harvey Weinstein. 
What's that? Uh, yeah. I hope you're going to mention uh, the Miami Herald reporter who who uh, uncovered most of that stuff after the police had been are you you're getting uh, your your creeps mixed up? You're talking about Epstein. That Miami reporter uh, was the one who you're broke right. the uh, on Epstein, which is, by the way, yes, all the powers that be. But it's a very similar theme. So yes. when intrepid when intrepid reporters turn their sights away from just ordinary regular people in Pottstown, Pennsylvania's of the world, and start looking powerful who have a lot of influence, a lot of money, and a lot of connections, those powerful people fight back. And they fight back by getting the bosses of the reporters to try to force them to back off. And that's what they try to do. Harvey Weinstein tried to do to Ronan Farrell. We got NBC. It's NBC was disgraced in this book. They got him. They, they killed the story at NBC, but then he went over to the New Yorker. So good for the New Yorker. Uh, but at the case with Epstein, yeah, absolutely. That reporter down in Miami, I, I think it's a woman. She broke one story after another and they just, so many powerful people put the pressure. They, she didn't get the Pulitzer uh, as a result of that. Uh-huh. Um, so this is this is a very in, in effect your your owners are trying to kill the story about what they're doing to the industry that you love. Um trying to kill it how? Well, in the particular case, uh, not having any comment whatsoever, not engaging the public in any kind of uh, honest oh. discourse about what they're up to, uh, only answering one, qu- only responding well, to some legitimate questions that Danny Barry raises by this cockamamie appeal to Sulzberger. That way, they're trying to kill a story. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, they're they're. Yes, they're they're trying to muffle it. They have uh, Heath Freeman has since been interviewed by the Washington Post. I think all of the bad press that uh, the Guild has been putting out and and uh, other publications and and other uh, news organizations that have been writing about it uh, are finally. I have to believe it's affecting the bottom line because I can't imagine anything else would have motivated him to finally speak out. So he was interviewed by the Washington Post finally and. Uh, Tried to pull on a charm offensive, but uh, the writer for the post wasn't going for it. And was was pretty straightforward. So, what's been the reaction in Pottstown uh, to your new celebrityhood? Well, I mean, there's there's a number of people who you know obviously congratulate me. Uh, I wrote a blog post about it, and I said, you know, every reporter, whether they'll admit it or not, you know, dreams of being on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, but in my case, it wasn't a byline. It wasn't a story. It was a story about me, and that's probably about as close as I'm going to get. But um, more more heartening has been the reaction of people who who recognize the value that the newspaper brings to civic life, to things that are important. I can I can give you a perfect example. Uh, on Tuesday this week, I just finished writing one of the stories. There were four different school board meetings going on, and. Um, Back in the beyond days of the Mercury, we would have had a reporter at each one, but it was just me. So, so I picked the one that looked like it would be the most newsworthy, but the other three were all discussing reopening plans, how they're going to reopen for school in the middle of the coronavirus. I mean, this is a global story writ small, and all of the people in those communities, all of those parents who have kids going back, all those teachers who teach in those schools, they all need to know 
what's going to happen and be part of that discussion. And and without us being able to cover that in any sort of uh, comprehensive way, that discussion is going to get muffled, and and they're not going to know uh, what's happening or have a chance to participate in their own government and and voice their opinion about what's being proposed. So I mean, I'm doing my best to catch up on it, but uh, you know, I just finished a story before I I got on with you uh, that'll be in at earliest Saturday or Sunday's paper, and they're going to vote on it on Tuesday. And that's because it took that long for me to get the recording of the meeting, and, and it was four hours long to go through it. And there's still two other school boards that are doing the exact same thing that I haven't gotten to yet. That's not yeah. serving the public. That's the that's the impact of these cuts that people don't, you know, it's like the old Joni Mitchell songs. They don't know what they've got till it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pave over paradise, put up a parking lot. Uh, Big yellow all right. taxi. Big yellow taxi, very good. <laughs> yes, big yellow taxi. You passed that test. Yesterday when I was talking to him on the phone, I, st- I don't know what was getting my, I started giving him trivia. Qu- Anybody knows me this, I have this impulse to just, <laughs> so I asked him, do you know this song? And he probably thought I was a raving lunatic, uh, but uh, you passed the Joni Mitchell audition. All right, now uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll close with this question. And that is, this is something that I struggle with many of my uh, newspaper friends. Uh, when we got started in this business, it never occurred to us that we worried about the business model. Right. It never, exactly right. you know, I'd like, oh, I'm just, uh, I'm above all that. I'm uh, cover, uncovering, you know, the dirt. I'm doing the digging. I'm writing the truths that need to be written. But now more and more uh, working journalists have to worry about how the bills are going to get paid by the operation that they work for. Uh, and I could tell you this in my own life, it's very real. Uh, so do you, having been through all this, having confronted, uh, Heath Freeman, having been involved, uh, with your union, having written about this and thought about this, do you have any notions of how a, a paper in a town like Pottstown can survive going forward so that it can complete its important mission? Well, um, unfortunately, I've had to become better versed with these business aspects than than I ever wanted to be. Um, and and one of the things about keeping papers going is it's very expensive to buy newsprint and to and to you know print paper and then you have to pay people to deliver it and and to sell ads. That's that's where the high end costs are. Um, and so I'm not sure. I mean, I, I love print. I have, I bleed ink, but. Uh, in all objectivity, I, I can't tell you that the actual physical newspaper model is going to be sustainable in the long run. I mean, and and, and I've said to people, what's, what's important to me is not that the newspaper uh, remain, although I love it for romantic reasons, but that the function remains. The watchdog function on local government, you know, we don't have a First Amendment so that uh, – people can know about a car crash or so that, um, you know, know it's going to be on TV the next day. Uh, we have a, we have a first amendment because it's, it's absolutely imperative that there be someone to keep an eye on government at all levels. And that's the function, which I think is vital remain. And that's the function that local journalism provides. And, you know, if it can't be provided in print in a for-profit model, as has been the case since the since the nation was founded, then maybe there's another way. Maybe it has to be done on a nonprofit uh, model. Maybe it, you know, it can only be done online. Maybe people are going to have to pay for it 
you know, the same way they pay for electricity that they use. You need this information in order to be uh, an informed citizen. Um, and I'm sure that you've seen there are plenty of studies that have shown that in places where the local news goes away, voting goes down, taxes go up. Um, and in fact, um, municipalities get charged a higher interest rate on their bonds because the bond companies just assume, because there's no local news there, that there's going to be more corruption and waste. So uh, there's, there's a real regulating factor that uh, that the local press provides, and that's the function that's vital to remain. And, and whatever form we can find that allow that function to continue is the thing that we need to focus on. I have this little quote, which I didn't think I'd be reading to you, that's taped to the front of my computer by uh, a University of Illinois journalism professor named Robert McChesney. And the quote says, the founders never held the view that if rich guys can't make money off journalism, then we just won't have journalists. The nation was built on the idea that we have to put into place policies to guarantee journalism exists no matter what. And and that's the point where I think we're coming to in the country. Um, even the Newspaper Guild is beginning to come to that point. Um, and I'm going to have a discussion uh, on Monday with uh, someone who's been tasked with something that they're calling alternative ownership. I mean, the Newspaper Guild has forever been about, you know, contracts with owners. And I, when I was talking to John Slice the other day, I said, you know, we need we need to be players in this because there are no longer owners who want to run a newspaper as a newspaper. They want to run it out of Wall Street as a business. And, and yeah. those things are compatible. You know, like I'm, I told someone on Twitter, I don't hate Heath Freeman because, um, you know, they're a hedge fund. They're Wall Street. They're interested in profit. That's what they do. So we shouldn't expect them to do anything else. Uh, I, I told this fellow uh, on Twitter, I said, listen, um, don't hate the shark because, you know, it attacks. Don't swim with sharks. <laughs> That's a pretty good don't, line. Don't expect, don't, don't don't expect them the to do anything. And they're never yeah. going to change. So what we have to do is we have to get this function out of their hands. And they won't care. You know, they'll just move on to the next company they're going to savage and pick the bones off of. They don't care. This just happens to be a particularly profitable one right now because the business model is collapsing all over the place, and they can just run around and, and grab up all these papers and milk them until they're dead. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still struggling with uh, not hating the shark thing. I don't know. Sharks, <laughs> I'm not, I get the point. I really do get the point, but I'm not feeling sharks right now. So, uh, uh, well, but anyway, your the last point is a very important one. Yes. And um, I think there will be new models uh, that things we would never have envisioned uh, Evan, we got in the game. I mean, I mean, believe it or not, I'm even older than you. So things that I never would have imagined uh, are just down the road. Uh, and uh, yeah, you're right. It's probably going to be. And, and you know, the funny thing that you, you mentioned, uh, maybe newspapers are going going to have to go out. I still subscribe, Evan Brandt, to three daily newspapers. They come to my house. God bless okay? you. I'm holding up the whole freaking industry. In fact, you can tell your friend Dan Barry, I'm subsidizing him. I subscribe to the New York Times, all right? So, uh, well, the, the, they're a newspaper that's not struggling like the rest, but I'm sure they appreciate your patronage. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're not struggling. Thanks, suckers like me. Uh, if you, can, but uh, anyway, no, I love the New York Times dearly, and uh, I appreciate Dan Barry's uh, article one more time, folks. If you haven't read it, go check it out. It's really well done. It's a profile of newspapers, uh, and it's a profile of Evan Brandt. Uh, and even though he buried the lead, I still think it's an outstanding job that he did. Uh, and Evan, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, keep up sure, the fight, and uh, you're a hero in uh, the eyes of many Chicago uh, journalists. Just want to let you know that, all right? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, but uh, fear not, Capes. All right, that, very good. Evan Brandt, thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Hey, college students, are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. We got to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. By the way, if you're listening to this show, we have over 500,000 downloads. And if you own a business, boy, we would love to sponsor it. That's right. Uh, just contact Tracy Bame at the Chicago Reader. And uh, I don't know, find the number for the Sun-Times and call someone there and uh, say, hey, I want to sponsor the Ben Jarofsky show. I'm not sure who you asked for. But uh, yeah, that'd be fantastic if you uh, became a sponsor. Well, I'll make a commercial. We'll do a Ben will do a live read. He loves live reads. But seriously, uh, I would love to add your business or union to this list. I am about to read the Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by our dear friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Let me tell you about voting by mail. It's pretty cool. Voting by mail ensures equitable access for everyone. Normally, vote by mail applications are filled out online or in person. This creates a burden for people with limited access to transportation or internet services. Disproportionately, the elderly or people of color who are among those at greatest risk from COVID-19. Because of the pandemic, a law was passed in Illinois for November requiring vote by mail applications be sent to anyone who voted in 2018, 2019, or the 2020 primary. This falls short of what is needed particularly since these elections saw low turnout. We need to expand access. Mail-in voting is the best way to ensure everyone's voice can be heard safely. We can help expand voting access in Chicagoland by asking officials to send every eligible voter a vote-by-mail application. So, visit VoteMailChicago.com. That's VoteMailChicago.com. Dot com for call scripts and a petition. One more time. Vote. V-O-T-E. Mail. M-A-I-L. Chicago. C-H-I-C-A-G-O. Dot com to make sure that every voter in Cook County has safe and equitable polling. That's correct. Heard a lot of complaints. I'm not a doctor. Heard a lot of 